welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 118th episode, our guest is Arjun Singh Sethi. Arjun Singh Sethi is a community activist, civil rights lawyer, writer, and law professor based in Washington, D.C. He works closely with Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities and advocates for racial justice, equity, and social change at the local and national levels. His writing has appeared in CNN Opinion, The Guardian, Politico Magazine, USA Today, and The Washington Post, and he is featured regularly on national radio and television. He holds faculty appointments at Georgetown University Law Center and Vanderbilt University Law School, and presently co-chairs the American Bar Association's National Committee on Homeland Security, Terrorism, and Treatment of Enemy Combatants. He lives in Washington, D.C., His new book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out, will be published August 7th. And now, on to the show. Hi, this is Arjun. Hi, this is Rob. How are you? Hi, Rob. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks thanks for your interest. Thanks for requesting the ARC weeks ago for reading the book and uh, following up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I just got done with it, and uh, I don't want to say I enjoyed it, because that seems like the wrong word, but it was definitely uh, enlightening. It definitely gave a lot of new perspective, so I thought it was very interesting. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, so um, for people that are listening that don't know who you are, could you just go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is Arjun Sethi. I am a community activist, uh, civil rights lawyer, and writer uh, based in Washington, D.C., and I've been traveling the country and meeting with people who have been impacted by hate uh, and capturing their stories for my new book, uh, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. Right, and this is a collection of, I think it's 13 different stories here that uh, kind of give the perspective that you don't generally hear, even when we hear about these things, kind of as you point out in the book, it's it's kind of from an outside description, so this is kind of the first time we're hearing from some, and there's some pretty notable cases in here too, I had heard of a couple of these. So. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely, uh, there are actually 14 testimonials okay. um, in the book, um, there are two different uh, stories about two different mosques uh, in one of the chapters, mm. um, but the format uh, was very intentional. Um, I feel that survivors of hate um, often don't get to tell their own stories. Um, reporters, pundits, um, tell their stories for them. So it was very important to me to travel and meet with survivors in their houses of worship, offices, community centers, homes, um, and work with them to create these testimonies testimonials, which are really a kind of enduring account of, you know, what preexisted um, the incident or incidents, um, you know, and how they've endured despite it all. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, going back a little bit to the what gave you the idea to do a book like this, um, obviously, you know, the, the rise of, of Trump and Trumpism and all the associated things we've had in our society going on with that has obviously been kind of a, a wave going on. But do you think possibly you would have still done a book like this had it been President Hillary Clinton? I mean, there still seems like there would have been some hate around, but it may not have been so out in the open, I guess. So. Yeah, so, you know, hate pre-existed Trump. Um, hate will endure after Trump. Um, but it has nevertheless 
undeniably spiked um, both during his presidential campaign uh, and under his administration. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're hearing. Uh, we are hearing from targeted communities across this country, uh, activists um, who are reporting a spike in hate. Um, and as a consequence, I thought it was very important to both document what impacted communities were experiencing, but to also detail um, steps that um, anyone um, can take to address hate in this country. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And like you said, it was always kind of there, but if someone sees the president do or say something, it, it definitely gives a little more license than if you just see it. Because, you know, I've, I've seen the uh, slogan, make racists afraid again, and that that I think that, you know, that there's a power to being like, there's a social cost for you acting this way. And if they don't see a social cost or they see someone at the top acting a certain way, it doesn't seem like there is much of a social cost for acting in, in the way they do. So, Yeah, you know, some of the words that, you know, survivors and, and activists have been using are uh, embolden, um, mm-hmm. facilitate, uh, empower, you know, these destructive forces like white supremacy, anti-black racism, xenophobia, sexism, misogyny, anti-Semitism. So, I mean, that's what they're experiencing, and, and I think that's that's what's happening in this moment. You know, it, it, there's also something very unique um, and 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 disturbing um, about this president, right? Because it's really the worst form of bully pulpit. Um, he is um, um, uh, fostering hate on the basis of almost every human characteristic. If you think about the statements he's made on the campaign trail, um, the policies he's enacted, um, he's fostered hate on the basis of race, faith, disability, sex, gender identity, identity, sexual orientation, weight, um, mm-hmm. national origin, age, immigration status, um, class, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so, I mean, th- th- these are things that he has very legitimate, very, very intentionally um, fostered. And I think it's in part because, um, you know, his ideologies are white supremacy and greed. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who denies that isn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you kind of point this out, not to jump ahead, but at the kind of conclusion of your book when you're talking about kind of where we go from here and all that, you do kind of mention how, you know, the causes for somebody to vote for Trump or somebody to support him. And, you know, and, and I also it reminded me of another quote I've heard. It's like anything that's, if you've always been uh, at the, the top, anything that's equality feels like oppression. So it's like if you're just used to white supremacy, even if you don't think of it in those terms, like if, even if that vocabulary words aren't in your brain, it's still, you know what I mean, if you see all these, oh my gosh, these there's all these non-white people are, are coming up behind us, This, you know, I feel like I'm losing something, help, you know, like, but it's like you're not really losing anything other, more so, it's just like other people are finally getting, you know, a seat at the table where they didn't have one before, and you felt like that was normal, and you did, may have even taken it for granted or not thought about it that way, so. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in some ways, I mean, his, his election is a response mm-hmm. to 
progress, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have made, we haven't made enough progress in this country, sure. but we have made some progress. Yeah. We have made some strides when it comes to, you know, issues of, um, you know, police accountability, um, civil rights, um, you know, and the like. Um, and in many ways, I think he was elected to turn back the clock mm-hmm. uh, because there are a lot of people in this country, um, in particular white Americans, um, who are threatened by equality under the law. Mm-hmm. Um, they are threatened um, uh, by the changing demographics of this country. Uh, I mean, this is just a fact. We know this statistically that a majority of white Americans feel that they are the victims of discrimination. Mm. And it's mind-boggling considering the many privileges they have and considering the bullying, discrimination, uh, violence, and hate um, that minority communities experience every day in some form or another in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the important things that this book kind of does is it reminds people of what they don't have to deal with. And I think the hardest thing for people to wrap their heads around if they don't get this yet is it's hard to notice what doesn't happen to you. So they, when people, I think people who are in this camp, they hear white privilege and they're like, what privilege? I didn't don't have any privilege. It's just like, yeah, you don't you don't realize it because it's not something there. It's, it's like hard to make someone notice what doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So. No, absolutely, and and this dovetails with a point you 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 raised earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been thousands of incidents of hate in this country where people have actually cited Trump, mm-hmm. right? So there can be no question that you know he has intensified and aggravated hate violence in this country. And absolutely, as you read these fourteen stories, um, right? It, it's 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 impossible to deny that there are people who are acutely impacted in this moment. Um, it could be Asma Abu Kaye in chapter one talking about how um, in the grocery store, when she accidentally uh, uh, hit somebody with her cart, right? Just a gentle nudge happens sometimes, mm-hmm. right? People will make a comment about her hijab, right? Um, it could be um, a call, the young sick student, um, later in the book, who, after the election, all of a sudden started being called an immigrant boy in class mm-hmm. um, and, 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 and threatened with deportation by his own students, mm-hmm. by his own sort of, uh, you know, classmates who are what? You know, they're, they're not even teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's Jeanette Vizgura having to have a conversation mm-hmm. at the dinner table with her children saying, ICE might come to our house and, and separate us. Or, you know, a mosque in Victoria. I mean, imagine Imagine a parent having to tell uh, uh, their child, our mosque was burned down last night by a man who hates Muslims. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, these right. are the types of conversations that, that parents are having with children, that communities are having with each other um, in this moment. Right, right. Um, in the introduction to the book, and, and you brought up the, the kid there that was Sikh, uh, you, you talk about yourself being Sikh, and um, I've never had a chance to interview someone who was a Sikh, so forgive me if I ask a stupid question, but um, for people that aren't 
uh, of your faith, what do you want them to know about your faith and what do they believe and, you know, what would you want to say? Sure. So I'm a sick American um, and I can be um, identified by certain articles of faith, uh, including my hair, my long hair, which I cover with a turban um, and a beard. And, you know, there are lots of different interpretations about the meaning of of the articles of faith, but um, I feel very comfortable saying that in many ways it is a uniform and it's meant to Mm -hmm. um, sort of distinguish us. Um, Sikhs have always played the role of peacekeepers and servants of justice Mm -hmm. um, historically and even in this sort of moment. Um, So that's in part why we keep, um, you know, that unique identity. Um, Sikhism originated um, from Punjab, India, um, and there are now Sikhs, uh, you know, really across the world. It's Mm -hmm. a monotheistic faith um, that really emphasizes, you know, both faith in God, uh, but also justice and being active in the community um, and helping those in need. Um, And, you know, in many ways, um, you know, being a Sikh um, informs some of my work uh, because I come from that history of, um, you know, serving the marginalized. um, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, even the book, right, it's it's dedicated to my mother, but it's also dedicated to the silenced and unheard Mm -hmm. uh, because there are so many people both in this country and across the world, um, mm-hmm. you know, who are silenced and unheard. Right, right. Um, and in the book, we hear from, uh, I kind of make this connection, because you talk about how uh, a lot of Sikhs are, are, are targeted because of the turban. Um, you know, you talk about how, you know, they, they people mistake them for being Muslim, maybe, but and then it kind of made me think of in the Jabara family that you talk about in your book here, who are Christian Lebanese Americans, and it's like, okay, on the one hand, you want to say to the confused haters, hey, it's like, we're Christians just like you, don't you get it? But at the same time, it's not like it would be acceptable if we weren't, you know what I mean? It would still not be okay what you're doing. So, and I feel like uh, sex are kind of in the same boat because it's it's like you you're, you're, you don't, can't even get your hate straight, you know, you don't even know who you're hating and why, but it's like you also want to send the message. It's like, look, this is not okay, no matter who you do this to, so. No, and you're right to point that out, and it's hard, right? I mean, it, it, it's, I, mean I, I think there are many reasons that Arab Americans um, are the targets of hate, uh, both historically and today. And I think there are many reasons that six Americans Mm -hmm. have been the targets of of hate, both in the past and today. Mm -hmm. In some cases, there might actually be a a potential case of mistaken identity, but the response... Mm by Arabs, by Sikhs, mm-hmm. and by communities generally has always been rooted in solidarity. Oh, yeah. Right? So Sikhs don't come out and say, hey, we're not Muslim, leave us alone. Right? Yeah. Bars don't come out and say, hey, we're not Muslim, leave us alone. Right. It's always been, right? This is an inclusive, this is, this, 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 we're supposed to be an inclusive, just society. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of us have the right to exist uh, 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 in, in, and live, you know, with our families and live in our communities peacefully and, and free from harm. And, you know, I think, I think you know, Arab Americans in this country and, and sick Americans deserve mm-hmm. a lot of credit, um, you know, for taking that high ground. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and standing in solidarity with, with communities that have been impacted, um, you know, shoulder to shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with our Muslim brothers and sisters. Well, sure. You don't want to throw someone else on under the bus under just the to bus. get, you know, away from you. So, um, And you also point out after one of these mass shootings we had at a sick temple, uh, they basically, they, they prayed for the shooter too and that that's like wow okay that would not be my first response if if uh, if that that takes that's a lot of uh, you have to swallow a lot and kind of rely on your faith I, I imagine in that moment I'm sure that informs 
that response too. So, absolutely, and you know that's one of the things that I found. Um, there is indeed hate across this country, mm-hmm. um, but there is a lot of resilience and hope too. Um, you know, you see this in every story: um, survivors rebuilding, um, survivors educating, organizing, coming together, um, having difficult conversations, building community defense programs, taking self-defense classes, standing up for others who were targeted like they once were. Um, And yes, there are many survivors who are even open to reconciliation, um, you know, who are are open to, uh, you know, having some of those very difficult conversations, not just generally speaking, but with those who targeted them. Yeah. Right. right. And, um, you know, we learned in, in, in one of the stories about how you know, Akal's um, aunt, uh, Harjit Gore, um, uh, they decided not to um, uh, recommend suspension or expulsion uh, for the student who kept bullying him because zero tolerance policies don't work in the class classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard from the spokesperson from the Victoria Mosque, um, Shahid Hashmi, about how um, when somebody had previously vandalized the mosque um, and they apologized for it, they didn't they, they 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 opted against. They didn't want criminal charges. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in one of the most extraordinary cases I know of, as you just pointed out, you know the six of Oak Creek, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. after one of the worst hate crimes, mass shootings, you know, in a house of worship in American history, they actually prayed for the soul of the shooter the mm-hmm. day after the tragedy. Um, and I think that is a testament to um, you know uh, the resilience. Um, um, you know, and 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 the dedication that these commu- communities have to, um, you know, reconciliation and justice and 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 really these sort of progressive concepts. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And you do kind of talk a little bit about in the, in the book about different communities standing together, but you also talk about people in the in the book who are minorities within minorities, yep. um, and that kind of brings up the concept of intersectionality. Uh, can you explain what that is and how that affects the people? Because it's like it's hard enough to be. I'm sure one minority, but then to be a smaller segment within that segment has got to be the extra thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and the term that people often use is intersectionality, Mm -hmm. right? So there are going to be, you know, people who are members of, for example, uh, one minority or or, or marginalized community. But sometimes, you know, they are members of multiple communities, and that makes them acutely vulnerable to hate, hate violence, bias, and bigotry. And I tried to include some of those perspectives. So, you know, an example is Jeanette Vizgura. She's not just Latinx, right? She's also undocumented. Mm-hmm. Um, Surat Swang um, identifies as queer, um, but he's also Southeast Asian. Um, Destiny Mangum, um, or sorry, uh, Walia Muhammad, that's Destiny's best friend. Walia Muhammad um, is a black Muslim. Um, and as a consequence, she sort of at, um, you know, the intersection of, 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 of multiple identities. Um, Dominic Evans identifies as uh, a trans and a person with a disability. Um, so I thought it was really important. Those are just a few examples. There are others. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was important to center those voices in the book. Um, and, you know, we, we all have to do a better job um, of making sure um, the most marginalized among us um, are safe and have the resources they need mm-hmm. um, because they are often the first to be targeted. 
it. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I, I think with this administration especially, I mean, you've seen this with the, uh, you know, the kids getting ripped away from the parents. And it's like, if they think they can get away with this with, with these people, it's not going to stop with that. So even if you don't personally care about those people, you, you just wait. They'll be, they'll be around for you, too. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I will tell you, I, 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 the, the policy of, of, of child sep family separation and mm -hmm. aging of families, for me, it's inseparable from immigration raids, yeah. from uh, uh, a revocation of DACA, mm -hmm. the Muslim ban, the rolling back of transgender rights, police reform. Mm -hmm. These are all policies that this president promised on the campaign trail, mm -hmm. and he's making true on those promises. So I, I am... I think we would be naive and, and, and mistaken to not expect similar policies of that vein in the future, because mm -hmm. it really is open season on diverse communities in this country. Right. Yeah, I, I read a thing near the beginning of the presidency about from Masha Gessen, who is, uh, you know, obviously familiar with uh, Putin's government and her, uh, it was believe the autocrat, just believe, just believe, when they say something, just take them at their word. Don't just, oh, they're just talking, no, just just believe when they say something, take their word for it. They are telling you the truth. <laughs> so, I read that essay too, and yeah. how prescient. It was yeah. so prescient. Oh, absolutely. I wish it wasn't, but <laughs> yes, yeah. very, very scary. Um, but at the end of the book, uh, you kind of offer some solutions, and I don't mean for you to go over everything, um, but what were some of your key takeaways for, because, I mean, it's a pretty harrowing read to, to go through all these stories and get to the end, and she's like, oh, okay, now what? And you do kind of offer some some ideas of, of how to go forward, so what are what are some of your thoughts there? You know, so it's it's, and I say this in the preface and the introduction that you know it's it's hard and it's painful to read some of those stories. And I did think it was really important um, for readers um, to be equipped with resources uh, and an understanding for how they can make a difference. So there's a lot. Um, for example, with respect to survivors, um, a lot of survivors. Um, don't have health care. Um, they don't have the resources they need, um, whether it's, um, you know, counsel uh, and the like. So, you know, one of the recommendations I make is just making sure that survivors have the resources they need. Um, you know, asking city councils and states to um, set aside rapid response funding so that if there is a hate crime or is an incident of, of hate violence, uh, a case advocate uh, can be appointed to help these survivors and help them get health care, help them find a lawyer, um, help them respond to media inquiries, help them respond to trolling they sometimes experience online. Mm -hmm. Because when they come forward, often they're discredited because that's what happens sometimes in, you know, Donald Trump's America. Um, I recommend a survivor's network. You know, all of the survivors I spoke to expressed a very strong desire to meet one another. Yet there are no, no survivor networks that I know of that actually connect, um, uh, you know, survivors of hate violence with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would be an extraordinary intervention. Um, you know, treating racism um, and hate as a public health issue, right? We, we know this scientifically through research that racism kills, right? It actually affects us um, and, and, and has extraordinarily uh, um, uh, deleterious, you know, negative 
health outcomes. Um, so we should be treating it and funding it as such, um, and, and, and not just working directly with survivors, but also working with impacted communities because of you know the vicarious trauma effect. Um, communities at large are being impacted. You know, making sure that local advocates have the resources they need, right? They're the point of contact for so many survivors. I could not have written this book without them. I mean, it's their book, too, because they are always on the front lines. So making sure that we support these local advocacy organizations, whether it's organizations working with survivors of hate violence, working with families affected by the Muslim ban, working with families affected by this cruel and inhumane policy at the border of separating children from their parents, you know, and, and, and caging them. Um, you know, being truthful about the fact that you know, it's difficult to talk about profiling and surveillance and hate in this country if we don't also acknowledge, uh, you know, the war on terror abroad, right? And, and, and acknowledge that what happens internationally affects what happens at home, right? It should come as no surprise that Guantanamo Bay is and always has been a prison for Muslim men, that extrajudicial drone strikes, um, you know, impact disproportionately Muslim-majority countries, um, that climate change hit the global south the hardest. So a dismantling of those policies on the international level and the domestic level, right? I mean, we can have conversations about hate violence, but if the government is going to continue to treat these communities, whether it's through the Muslim ban, whether it's through immigration raids, whether it's through the rolling back of police reforms um, and consent decrees as suspect communities, you know, so will everyday Americans. Mm -hmm. um, there's really a lot. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, there, you, yeah. You, it's about 25 pages, so I don't mean to <laughs> make yeah. you say the whole thing or whatever, yeah. but in one part, you talk about there are uh, only five states that don't have hate crime laws, and I, I happen to live in one of those, Indiana. Yeah. Uh, and uh, can you talk a little bit about what the legal definition of a hate crime is and why you feel it's important to have those types of laws on the books? Sure. I think it's really important to have those those laws on the books because hate crimes are different from other crimes, right? In many ways, the definition of a hate crime is a crime that would not have occurred absent the identity of the victim or the survivor. Um, and as a consequence, we know that hate crimes affect um, victims um, in a more sort of uh, uh, enduring and substantial way than other crimes. So we know that the recovery period after a hate crime is twice as long than it is for another crime. I think it's also important because when you look at, for example, data, right, you can just look at crime data and say, okay, this is an issue, that's an issue. But if you actually have data regarding hate crimes, you can actually track who is being targeted, where, and by whom. And it also allows us to have a meaningful conversation, right, about why hate violence is occurring. It allows allows us to actually see and understand that different incidents of hate violence aren't just necessarily episodic, right? They're interconnected, and they're often rooted in ugly forces like anti-Semitism, like white supremacy, anti-black racism. Um, so I think it's critical that every state has a hate crime law, because for the most part, you know, charges are brought uh, by states, not the federal government. Um, and um, I, I, it's just a way of ensuring, really, that the government has, you know, communities back. The one point I will make is that 
I am not in favor of hate crime laws because they might add time to a prison sentence, right? I, uh, uh, I have very serious concerns about the criminal justice system in this country. Um, I think mass incarceration is a human rights abomination. Mm-hmm. But I nevertheless think that hate crime laws serve an important purpose. The other thing we've seen is that if you actually have a hate crime statute, judges are then often afforded the discretion um, to actually prescribe, you know, interesting restorative sentences. So there are times where judges have actually ordered people who have targeted communities or harassed or threatened communities to learn about them, to spend time with them, to do community service there. Um, and that's really what justice is about. It's not languishing in jail. It's actually learning from the community that you once targeted. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you can have any idea about you want about somebody if you don't know them or spend any time with them. But if you're kind of forced to immerse yourself in it, it's pretty hard to hate somebody that you're that close to. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably a good plan. Um, now, in your section about the media, I think you, you mentioned uh, the word terrorist. And I thought you had an interesting take on that because, um, you know, we always talk about how in headlines and that we always refer to, you know, if there's a white shooter, a Dylan Roof, for example, uh, he's, he's troubled, he's, uh, he's a weirdo, he's, he's not one of us, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, anybody that is, you know, brown, let's face it, is called a terrorist. You know, if, the, if somebody has darker skin tone, they're called a terrorist in the same situation. Um, my take on that was when that Dylan Roof thing happens, I'm like, well, if, if terrorist means anything, this guy's a terrorist. But you kind of take the opposite tact, and you're saying we shouldn't use that word at all, because it's basically, I mean, you, you explain why, but I thought that was an interesting take you had. So listen, there is no question that um, when a Muslim commits an act of violence in this country, right, the media covers it differently. Mm-hmm. In fact, we actually know, right, that research um, shows that attacks perpetrated by Muslims receives four and a half times more media coverage than those perpetrated by non-Muslims. And that disparity in coverage is in large part because of the terminology, right? We call Muslims terrorists and we call white supremacists um, criminals or lone wolves or, um, uh, you know, uh, folks struggling from depression. Um, You know, my response is that we should abandon the term terrorist altogether. And I say that because I'm fundamentally a human rights lawyer um, and I believe in rights. And what we've seen time and again is that when we use and invoke the word terrorist, it's automatically uh, uh, meant uh, as, the, as, as a mechanism to withhold rights and dehumanize suspects, which is why I think the term should be abandoned altogether. So again, look, the greatest th- threat facing this country comes from white supremacists, right? Not Muslims or refugees. That's just a fact. You are more likely to be harmed or killed in the United States by a white supremacist than a Muslim immigrant or a refugee. Um, and, you know, we need to treat white supremacy like the threat it is. But um, I would counsel against using the word terrorism because I do think that um, it, 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 it puts us in a very difficult uh, legal position um, because of what, of what different administrations have tried to do when we invoke that term. Sure, absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, and in this uh, section in the end, too, you, you kind of talk about the Trump voter, and we touched on this a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing most of them wouldn't openly classify themselves as bigoted. But as you pointed out in the book, they're at least willing to overlook the bigotry of others. And uh, it's especially baffling to me, uh, since I would venture to bet most of, most of them call themselves Christians, which, which just boggles my mind uh, on a daily basis. But, um, you know, how, how do you, how, do you have any recommendations for, for bridging that divide, or do you just think it's hopeless to try to penetrate that? You know, I mean, I, mean, I think the language that I use, and, 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 I'm, and, I, and I'm comfortable with this, right, is that, you know, though uh, not every Trump supporter um, is necessarily a racist, they're at least bystanders, to racism, um, you know, and it's also important to you know what do we mean when we when we talk about racism? Racism isn't just you know saying something racist to another human being. Um, it's 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 how it manifests in those softer ways, right? Is it's whether you have empathy for a certain person or whether you are less likely to have empathy for a certain person because of the color of their skin, and that's really what white privilege is about. Um, so you know, the way I see it is, you know, there are many. Trump supporters who are racist. Um, the other Trump supporters are at least bystanders to racism, but all of them, right, voted for Trump and voted for his racist policies that the communities in this book experienced firsthand. Um, and they have to take ownership over that. Um, and there's just no two ways about it. And in terms of moving forward, you know, one of the things I say is that, you know, white allies need to step up, right? It's not enough to just ask, you know, marginalized communities to have community conversations about diversity, right? We need anti-racism trainings across this country. And in a lot of those spaces, you know, folks who look like me and some of the folks in the book aren't welcome, right? But white allies are. And they need to just step up. And, you know, they need to explain to, to, to you know, our, our fellow Americans that, you know, Though they think um, they are the victims of discrimination, um, they're not. You know, they have a lot of privileges. You know, and and also understanding. And I and this is something that I am aware of and I am sensitive to that, you know, there is great economic inequality in this country and we do need to have a deeper conversation about class um, and the gap between the city and the hinterland. Um, and, you know, there, and, and I want to avoid sort of general characterizations, right? Like, you know, the North and the South. And I, and I think it, you can't homogenize parts of this country, but, but, but there is no question there are economic disparities. Um, and I think we do need to have conversations about, you know, how to bridge some of that, um, how to make sure that the pie isn't just bigger for all of us, um, but that it's shared. Um, and, and we have to have some of those conversations. Um, but I am hopeful, and I am hopeful because the survivors I met are hopeful. Um, they are ready and open to having difficult conversations, um, not just with their own communities, but with the very people who targeted them, um, with Trump supporters. Um, you know, and if, 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 if they're willing to do it, how can we not follow their example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're definitely right about that. Um, now, one of the refrains we hear from white supremacists, especially, is "call for free speech." Um, and it's a it's a tough issue for me because you know I'm a journalist and I'm somebody who loves words, and so you know I, I inherently want to be like, okay, well, okay, fine, free speech. But like, uh, you know, there there is this concept that you know they they try to push things that are targeted at certain people and and hateful and and you know really do 
do have consequences for these marginalized communities you're talking about. So, you know, the, the line is always like the answer to bad speech is, is more speech. But uh, what's your take on that? And just what do you think the First Amendment covers? And what do you think free speech should be in that case? Yeah, I mean, this, this, this is a minefield and there are lots of people who have different issues. Um, you know, the first point I would make is I think it's important to actually center marginalized and impacted voices in this conversation, right? So often you will have journalists who have views. You will have, I'm, I'm a civil rights lawyer, you'll have lawyers who have views. But are we actually hearing from people who have experienced, you know, bigotry and bias firsthand? So just as a very concrete example, we have seen these anti-Muslim marches across this country. I mean, Charlottesville was an example. It was different. It wasn't anti-Muslim march. It was a white supremacist neo-Nazi march, right? But outside of mosques, we have seen white supremacists come together, right, stand outside a mosque in an open carry state with a gun, saying things like, you know, Muslims go home, Muslims belong in hell, right? Now, why should a Muslim parent, right, have to experience that on their way to the mosque, right? And how are they supposed to explain that to their young child? So first and foremost, we need to make sure that we're actually hearing from people who experience it. And I think their voices are largely silenced and ignored. Um, you know, secondly, I think it's easy to say in a vacuum that, you know, we all have the opportunity to exercise uh, and to engage in free speech. But the fact of the matter is, is that some people can buy free speech, right? Mm -hmm. Some people can uh, uh, just have a, 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 a megaphone and a microphone, right? And others don't have one. Um, so I think we just need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, free speech, um, it's Itself, um, you know, is it, 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 it presumes a kind of power dynamic, um, and there are those who have the opportunity to exercise it, um, and there are those who don't. Um, I will say that I feel very strongly about um, technology companies taking a stronger position mm -hmm. um, in combating hate online, um, and I believe companies like Twitter and Facebook, um, Airbnb, uh, Square, um, Uber and the like, um, you know, they shouldn't be supporting white supremacists and they shouldn't be supporting this hate. I mean, there are examples in this book. Tanya Gersh um, was so viciously trolled. Now, in that case, it's interesting because they've actually brought a case saying that's not free speech, right? You've actually, you know, violated certain laws. Um, but not everyone has access to a lawyer, right? Not everyone can have the Southern Poverty Law Center represent you in a major litigation that's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. Um, so, and I also know that the technology companies, you know, I, I know they've made mistakes, and I know that they are for-profit entities, and um, uh, they have a lot of work to do. And there's also the issue of bots, right, and, 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 mm -hmm. and governments actually funding these troll armies. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that in many ways, we're still in the early innings when it comes to the Internet. And I do think that, you know, with time, we're going to be able to have a more robust conversation with these companies to ensure that these spaces online, you know, are more, more democratic and more respectful and more conducive to, to, to the type of engagement that, you know, communities are really seeking. Mm -hmm. Well, and my thing with it is always like, you know, the Twitter is not a government entity. And then, like you're saying, they're a private company and they don't have to let anybody on there, especially if they're violating the terms of service 
that you agree to when you sign up. So it's not even like you're picking and choosing. It's just like, are you literally just going to follow what you say? So, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to, to see how people think that's covered under free speech or the First Amendment. It's like, well, no, this is, you know, this is their ball field and they can t- tell you to take your ball and go home. So, Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I think part of the problem is that those companies exercise so much power, they might as well be sovereign nations. True, true. Um, you know, and, and again, we, we have to be careful, right? Because they could go after white supremacists today, but tomorrow, right? Maybe they'll go after this newly created category under the Trump administration of black identity extremists, right? right? Which right. is just mm-hmm. a way of targeting black activists who are, you know, engaging in civil rights work and organizing in the streets and, you know, fighting for Black Lives Matter and the like. So, you know, there has to be transparency. There has to be a robust dialogue. And there should be an appeal mechanism so that if somebody is removed from these platforms, they have the ability to appeal because mistakes will be made. And mistakes have been made. Alexandra Brodsky talks about that in her story. Mm-hmm. She was viciously trolled online. And then when she retweeted the the disturbing images of her um, that were, you know, uh, uh, distributed on, on, online just after inauguration, she was suspended. Mm-hmm. She was removed. So right. there, there has to be that conversation. Yeah, conversation. That, that's a good point. Yeah. And then, you know, this, this idea, this kind of utopian idea of the marketplace of ideas, that, that definitely presume, presumes uh, kind of good faith on all actors. And, and you know, you've talked about these online trolling incidents. And these people are not acting in good faith, and they're not doing this because they genuinely want to exchange ideas and learn. They're really just, like, poking at the boundaries and seeing what they can get away with. You know what I mean? It's, it's not an honest conversation. So. No, it's not. It's yeah. not. And and I will say this, you know, the stakes are high. So Dominic Evans in his story speaks in such vivid detail about the stakes of this issue. So he talks about how as a disabled person, social media was so important for him because as a person with a disability, he didn't have it was difficult for him to connect with other folks like him. Mm-hmm. Right? So Having social media, um, you know, allowed him to better understand himself and come to terms with what he wanted, his needs. Um, So it's important that we actually create a space online where, you know, activists and, and communities can continue to engage in one another because it's important to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is the only outlet some people have. I mean, they don't have access to all these other tools that other people have access to. So this may be the only lifeline to other people they have, as, as you point out here. So, yep. Um, so, I mean, you, I mean, in your work and in this book, do you deal with some pretty depressing subjects a lot? And I'm sure that you have ways of uh, decompressing. What do you do for fun? How do you take your mind off of all this? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it 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 it, it was hard, um, but um, you know, I, one of the things I actually talk about in the book, um, you know, I actually took great comfort um, spending time with uh, my family's two big black German shepherds. In fact, <laughs> they're outside the door right now, and they're pawing the door because they wanted <laughs> me to take them outside and play ball with them. Um, so I love animals. Um, I love dogs. Um, I love independent film. Um, you know, I actually think in some ways we're living in sort of the golden age of television. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many wonderful TV series. Um, you know, Vida is a new show um, that came out. Um, it's just it's just fantastic. It's 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 produced, run, and acted entirely by um, uh, you know Latinx women. Um, 
I like Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and I love soccer. The World Cup just ended. Oh, and, nice. Uh, um, I'm an Argentina Lionel Messi fan. Okay. I love. I absolutely love soccer. Okay. Does it seem like soccer's gotten bigger than ever? I, I don't remember previous World Cup being quite this popular. It seems like it's got a like, breakthrough point, kind of. I hope so. I think <laughs> soccer is a beautiful game. I think so- it's 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 just you know it's beautiful because anyone can play it. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyone can play it. Luka Modric, um, who won the um, you know best player award um, for the the Golden Boot, I think is, is the name of the award, um, or player of the tournament in the World Cup. Um, he was a refugee from Croatia. Mm. Um, he learned to play soccer in the parking lot of a hotel where his family lived from the ages of five to eleven. Um, it's just an extraordinary story. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you look at the French team, so many of the players are right. diverse mm-hmm. and they come from immigrant families. Um, so in some, in many ways, I feel like sports is one of the last great meritocracies in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and soccer is just such a beautiful, you know, team game. Um, I have a nephew; he's uh, five and a half, and I'm trying to do everything in my power to get him to play soccer. <laughs> they move closer. I want to coach the team because <laughs> I used to play a lot of soccer when I was younger. So nice. I'm like really into it. But cool. yeah, I think it has gotten bigger and deserved. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, um, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? No, you know, I just, I, I, I just want to encourage. Um, I want to thank you for having me on. Um, I want to encourage everyone, you know, to take a stand. Um, silence is complicity. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, there are 30 pages in the book that are devoted to best practices. That's a playbook. It's a playbook for you to get involved in whatever way you're comfortable. It could be financial support. Um, it could be if you're an elected official standing with these communities and inviting them to testify. Um, it's just there's, if you're an ally, hosting folks who are impacted, there's just so many things we can do. And I just encourage everyone to find a way to get involved, um, you know, and support people because, you know, they need it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's easy to feel hopeless if you don't feel like there's anything you can do, but there's something everybody can do. So that's a good point. Um, but uh, last question I always ask this before we go. What music have you been listening to lately? Bob Marley. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I good think answer. I think sort of the the, the soul um, of of his music has uh, um, also kind of helped me and sort of nurtured me um, as I've as I've worked on uh, worked on the book. Um, and then I would probably remiss if I didn't say Cat Power as well. Oh, nice. That was a good answer. Cool. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, everyone should read the book. Uh, it's definitely a necessary uh, thing right now. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you to all the listeners out there. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good day. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.